a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. In this episode, we're talking about the death of a tyrant and really Robert Mugabe, Keith, was, I mean, the epitome of tyrant, right? He was for the second half of his career. You've got to bear in mind that there are a lot of older Africans who would regard him still as a hero, right? So, yes, he ran Zimbabwe for 37 years and ran it into the ground, but he was also seen as a hero to an older generation because he took on the British rulers and then the illegal Smith regime. So in 1965, the whites in what was then southern Rhodesia decided to declare a universal declaration of independence. And the British were very slow to respond. They, they didn't invade and never invaded the country. They subjected southern Rhodesia to sanctions. So from 1965 for 14 years... There was a struggle that went on for southern Rhodesia eventually to become independent and to be governed by majority black rule. And Robert Gabriel Mugabe was very much active in that campaign. So he was one of the heroes of the campaign. We also need to mention that um, Malcolm Fraser, the Australian Prime Minister, also played an interesting role. But I've noticed that in the international coverage, he doesn't get any credit for it. So... You have Robert Mugabe leading the black nationalists in his political party. Malcolm Fraser could see that the old Soviet Union was doing well in Africa by saying, we are opposed to minority white rule and we are supporting the African freedom fighters. And so Malcolm Fraser had to try to convince his own Liberal Party and Mrs Thatcher that it was actually in the interests of the West to have someone like Robert Mugabe take the country over. All full marks to Malcolm Fraser. He was ahead of the pack on this one because the longer the West was seen to be propping up minority racist regimes, as in what was then Southern Rhodesia and South Africa, the longer that went on, the more mischief the Soviet Union and China could play by identifying with African liberation struggles. So Malcolm Fraser managed to get the British government to change their attitude towards Mugabe, and we ended up with what's called the Lancaster House Agreement in London in 1979, which then paved the way for majority black rule in the new nation of Zimbabwe. So at the time, it's fair to say he was, as you said, it was a popular move for him to come out of and protect the blacks. A very popular move, absolutely, for Malcolm Fraser to support the blacks. And the person that he particularly supported was Robert Gabriel Mugabe, who was a well-educated person, a great believer in, in education. In fact, to this day in Zimbabwe, even though the country's in economic chaos, nonetheless, some resources have still gone into the school system. So you do come across um, educated Zimbabweans working, um, well, here in Australia, you run across them in London, working in the national health system. So he he was a, a former teacher, then became a, a freedom fighter. Of course, he would also be called a terrorist, depending on what, what end of the spectrum you're in. One person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. And then he took over power in 1980. And tragically, instead of just serving for one term and getting out, 
he decided to hang around. If you if compare it with what was going to happen later on with Nelson Mandela in South Africa, Nelson Mandela said right from the outset he was only going to serve one term in office, whereas Mugabe had to keep on finding ways of continually winning elections by obviously rigging those elections, and, and that's what did the damage. If Mugabe had behaved like Nelson Mandela, we would this week in commemorating his death note that he was another great African leader. But instead, to a generation of youngsters like yourself, he's seen as a tyrant, whereas those of us who are older can remember him in a slightly different way. But that's because, again, as you were about to, you alluded to at the beginning there, which we'll go into more in detail in a moment, but his his method of ruling did change, though, over time, Keith, didn't it? Because at the beginning, of course, he liberated the country in many senses, but then his, uh, he had questionable antics around doing that as well. And then later on, it really, there, yeah. there was no one that really looked upon the way he ruled favourably, surely. No, well, unless you're a, a young radical African, in which case you'd be in favour of what he did with taking over the white farms. Yeah, and so that that began really the controversy, yep, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, is the breadbasket of southern Africa. You could feed that entire corner if the country were back to being fertile. But instead, the whites would, who were, were experienced farmers were driven off the land. They were replaced by mates of Robert Mugabe who didn't have a farming background. So they actually squandered the assets which they acquired through theft and led to a number of problems. One, of course, is a shortage of food. Another one is a shortage of export revenue because you're clearly not selling very much overseas. So it was actually a bad move on the part of Robert Mugabe. And also Mugabe destroyed the homes of his opponents. So there were two separate political parties, Zanu and Zapu. He was with one and then went after his other African Opponents. So, so he went after the white rulers who'd been there. Although, interesting enough, Ian Smith continued to live in, in Salisbury, Harare. I think he may even have died there. Ironically, you know, he was, a, and he, if, you, if you like, was the white tyrant that preceded Mugabe. He was the one who declared un, the Universal Declaration of Independence, UDI. But I think he continued to hang around for quite a while after. And Mugabe the didn't go near him. No, like he left him alone. Mugabe didn't bother to, to track him down. And there's a. It's interesting because when you're looking now at black commentators on Mugabe, their argument is that, okay, Mugabe may have been good for the very uh, early years and, of course, he was brave enough to um, oppose minority white rule and went to prison for it. But the problem is that the longer he stayed in power, the more he became identified with the white bankers overseas and other financial interests. So he got co-opted into the... Uh, international financial system. And that has obviously also damaged his standing because a lot of younger African commentators are saying that this guy sold out to the capitalists overseas in London and, and Wall Street, etc., particularly with what was called the Structural Adjustment Program. So as, as Zimbabwe got deeper into debt, it borrowed money from the banks and the international agencies. And he was willing to do the bidding of those agencies to make sure the money got repaid. So, you know, he, he's finished his life under a bit of a cloud. Now, I've noticed that his replacement, who was at one point one of his colleagues, Morgan Changarai, has actually tried to talk up, you know, his history, the pioneering years, 
as but his legacy. But a lot legacy. of people today <laughs> just say, well, I, I remember him because we've got hyperinflation. They're not interested in what he was able to achieve 30-odd years ago, almost 40 years ago. They're saying my standard of living has gone down, which is quite true. So how did, let's go back to the white farmers for a moment and the way he just dealt with that, which was not viewed with a friendly eye, shall we say, politically yeah. around the world. How did that change his standing in the world politics and where and how did that damage the economy and how did it add to also the demise of the country overall, Keith? Yeah. So by expelling the white farmers, by stealing their land, putting his mates in charge of it, first of all, you were putting people who didn't have a farming background in charge of farms. So you, you got good quality land, um, which then was squandered because you've got amateurs trying to grow food. That was the first problem. Then, um, because there was a lot of sympathy for those white farmers and a growing anger about Mugabe, so you ended up then with Mugabe being in isolation, international isolation. And so he became, towards the end of his life, very isolated indeed. Nobody really wanted to have anything to do with him. His first wife died. He married a much younger woman second time round. probably helped keep him going, 95 years old, good honour. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, Mugabe looked as though he was going to hand over power to his wife, who would, well, who's going to, about to become a widow. And at that point, the military rebelled against Mugabe. They didn't want to have her running the country. She looks a bit harsh, doesn't she? As well, and she was always, and the other criticism of her widely spread criticism was, she was always carrying Chanel or oh, wearing very high end labels in one of the most poorest countries exactly. in the world. It's very difficult to raise money for people in Zimbabwe through aid donations, aid campaigns, when people can see the first lady is a spendthrift, the way that she spends the money. So you're you're quite right. She was a very bad advertisement, really, for her husband. So at the end, there was a, a coup d'etat staged by the military and Mugabe was given the opportunity to resign, although he never accepted that, the, the use of that word. He left power and then went to live in South Africa. So Cyril Ramaphosa, who's the president of South Africa, stepped in and provided the exit route for Robert Mugabe. So he then lived in uh, the Republic of South Africa undergoing uh, medical treatment in Singapore, which is where he died in the end. So he was going back and forth. So clearly he was still a burden on the taxpayer in Zimbabwe because clearly he must have got money from somewhere to pay the private hospital expenses in Singapore, plus, of course, the luxury flights between South Africa and Singapore. When did he become on the nose with his own population, with his own constituents? When well, did Zimbabweans turn on him? Well, I think you, you, it was done in a series of stages because clearly the minority African party were clearly subject to their homes being destroyed. So that was quite early on. So having achieved power, he then started to wipe out his opponents. So some of the opponents were black politicians and the other opponents, of course, were the white uh, wealthy white farmers, etc. So it really just got more and more of a tyranny with the way that he behaved. And so he, he got more and more into all of this. And it, for me, it's interesting because if you look at, uh, in political science, we talk about incrementalism as a way in which change occurs. In other words, things occur in small increments. And so you don't really notice how much change is taking place 
because it's only a small increment of change. But you add that small increment to all the other increments and you can see how much things have changed. So in the very beginning, he was going after the the white farmers and a lot of people said, well, they, they'd stolen the land off the Africans anyway. No big deal. Let him get rid of the white farmers. Then he was going after his political opponents amongst the African political parties and white countries turned a blind eye to that. Remember the people like Malcolm Fraser had lobbied to get Robert Mugabe installed in the first place. So it was very hard for Malcolm Fraser to say, I've made a mistake by championing that cause. And there is, I think, a deeper issue in all African societies that African societies are very tribal. They are what would be called pre-democratic, pre-modern. In other words, in a country like Australia, sure, people might dispute between New South Wales and Victoria, and yet at the end of the day, we're all Australian. Whereas in many African countries, it's that tribal loyalty before any national identity. And so that has been the problem. And so Mugabe was able to exploit some of those tribal differences as well. It's a tragedy how he went, because he started out so well, being endorsed by Margaret Thatcher and Malcolm Fraser, and he squandered it. That That is the tragedy of Robert Mugabe. If he had behaved like Nelson Mandela was going to do a few years later, serve one term, then retire, become a great ambassador for your country with all of your activities, that is what he should have done. And then today would be speaking very highly of what a wonderful person Robert Mugabe was. Instead, as you've just said, he's a tyrant. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're uh, talking this episode about Robert Mugabe, the ruler of Zimbabwe with an iron fist. He started off well. He had best intentions when he took over leadership of that country um, in the face of white rule, um, you know, really putting his hand up for the blacks over there and fighting for their cause. Yeah. Um, but then it turned sour when he started taking land from the white from the whites in the country uh, who had been there for generations. And also, obviously, a massive dip in the economy, Keith, as we've talked about, the Western world turned their back on him. Would it have been the 90s, really, if you put it in a timeline? Okay. And the country really was not far behind. And he ruled with an iron fist. And, of course, there was no transparency in any of the so-called elections over the years either, were there? No, not at all. So um, his first opponent, uh, well, not first, but one of the opponents was Morgan, the late Morgan Changarai. And then, of course, um, at the end, it was Emerson Managua, who is now the ruler of Zimbabwe. So Emerson Managua, who was a former colleague of Robert Mugabe, but Mugabe turned against him. This is the problem with paranoid individuals, that they turn against even their closest colleagues. And so it happened with Morgan Changarai, the late Morgan Changarai, and it's now, and then it happened with Emerson Managua. But the military, when they deposed Robert Mugabe, figured, look, it'd be better to have someone like Emerson Managua running the country. And he has tried to attract foreign investment back into the country. The tragedy is the media focus so much on particular individuals, whereas, in fact, you've got deep-seated issues that have got to be sorted out. Uh, Obviously, the destruction of the farms that have taken place, it's going to take a while to get them back as, as worthwhile entities, the dislocation of the education system, and also um, other issues of, of just trying to reboot the economy, trying to drive out hyperinflation. These are major issues for Emerson Managua or anybody else who's going to try to run that society. It's going to be a very difficult challenge um, 
for the new leaders in Zimbabwe. So Mugabe's out of the way, so it'll stop his supporters thinking about this king across the water, to use the old phrase. You know, there's a ruler that we would love to have brought back. Well, you can't. He's gone now. So it's really the case for Emerson Managua to make the most of uh, what can be done to rebuild the country. I'm sorry to be so pessimistic. But it's so far gone. I mean, yeah. even, even I mean, being Africa and being amongst the countries that have got the wildlife themes going on, yeah. it, can, it can't even really play in that area because it became so unpopular. It would take so long to rebuild. It will indeed. And, of course, you know, in terms of the marvellous tourist attractions, and it's worth bearing in mind, uh, as someone who's actually flown on the airfield, that the airfield at uh, Harare, the old capital city of Salisbury, has got the longest airfield in Africa. So that was built by the British, which would help the British to deploy their air forces around southern Africa. So he inherited some good infrastructure, which is also then sort of wound down, unfortunately. So it requires a lot of money, a lot of technical skills to get that country up and running. And I think a lot of people now suffer from compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. Too much. Too much, yeah. We're helping out... Here we've got a tragedy in the Bahamas, got all the climate change issues that are occurring, etc. People are saying, why should we particularly help Zimbabwe when we have so many other claims upon our money and our time? Good point to end on. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.